0: ask you where do you start the christmas story where would you start would you start with the angels appearing to the shepherds out on the hillside outside ancient bethlehem would you start with joseph and mary trying to find a place to spend the night and being turned away at the inn would you start with an angel appearing to a teenage girl like where would you start i want to look at a lesser known story this morning Is when it came time for God to write the story of Christmas, this is where he starts the story. And you know this part. An angel shows up to a man who's never had kids, and his name is Zechariah, right? This is the story before the story. So if you have your Bible with you, or you have your Bible app, uh, open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. We'll have it on the screen too. While you're looking that up, let me just uh, ask you, like, why do we do this? Like, why do we go back to this story every year? It's not because we just want to go back and study old literature. It's not because we love going back and studying history. I mean, most of us would rather study history with a bucket of popcorn and a large Coke and just sit back for a couple hours and let it unfold in front of us on a big screen, right? But the reason we go back and study history this way is because the way God dealt with people in the past shows us something about the way God deals with us now. And God invites us to be a part of his story, the story that he's been telling for for thousands of years, for centuries, for generations and generations. And then secondly, we go back and study these stories to ask, you know, God, if this is the way people cooperated with you then, what does it look like for me today? Like, how can we play a part? How can we be involved in the script. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But don't you love how this story starts? Two people doing the right thing, spend their whole lives doing the right things. They seem to be like loving God, but... like I love the honesty of the Bible when it comes to the Christmas story. The Bible's version of the Christmas story is why I tend to have a dislike for our neat, cutesy, cleaned up and biblically inaccurate nativity scenes and Christmas carols and church pageants because the Bible's telling of the story is so honest. Zechariah and Elizabeth had spent their whole lives loving God, obeying God, and doing the right things. But, like, how many of you can identify with this? Like, we've been coming to church for years. We've prayed about this for a long time. We've tried to be consistent, and we've tried to do the right things in the right ways, for the right reasons, but... like. Here's where we are financially. Here's where our relationship is today. Here's where the kids are at. Here's where our health is. Here's where my career is. I mean, you've been loving God and living for God for a long time, but, and you fill in the blank. So when the New Testament opens, God says, let me tell you about two people. They love me. They're doing the right things, but like they were hoping the story would turn out differently. They were hoping the script would be different than this. And they're praying to God, let this year be different from the year we just finished. It's like, let 2022 be different than 2021 and for sure different than 2020, right? Please, God. And God is like, this is where I'm starting the Christmas story. And my hunch is if this is where he started 2,000 years ago, this just might be where he starts with us. Verse 7. But they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Sorry, Zechariah. It's like the readers need to know you're old. Sorry, Elizabeth. We need to write down that you're very old. They, it just, they, you're not just old you don't, and don't have kids. You're like very old, right? And even though the Bible doesn't say how old they are, <laughs> and of course, old is, is relative, right? Because life expectancy in first century Palestine was a lot lower than ours is today. But I think Luke makes his point that Zechariah and Elizabeth were way beyond childbearing years. They're near the end of a story. They aren't about to start a new story. But God says, no, this is the story before the story. This is the story before the manger scene. This is the story before the angels and the shepherds. This is the story way before the wise men. And there are two people here, and God's like, I'm about to show up. And I tend to wonder, like, why? Like, why them? Why now? Why do some people seem to play a bigger role in the story of God? Why does God seem to use some people for the big roles in his story? And why among those people does God seem to use, like where he used, seems to use people where there seems to be this like unfairness, right? Because so many of them were loving God, walking with God, just doing one right thing and then the next right thing and then the next right thing. But you look at their lives and there's always something that's just unfair about it. There's a part of the story that doesn't seem to add up. It just doesn't seem fair. Like, why does God seem to take someone through something really unfair, certainly undeserved, right? And then it just, just when it seems like he's forgotten about the situation or he's not going to do anything about it, at the very last minute, it's like he shows up. It's so like over and over we see that in Scripture. And I just wonder, like, what's the deal with that? Part of the problem is the way that I evaluate things. Like, I tend to judge how God works by blessing or how I define blessing. Like, I define it by, like, life is getting better. But sometimes God is saying, your greatest usefulness is going to be in the dark times. I'm going to shine brightest in your life during the dark times. And I see the heartache and I see the pain. And now I want to use the heartache and pain. And I'm going to use you in the process. And I'm going to get the glory. But then I think we need to put ourselves in a position to be used. The Bible doesn't leave us hanging on this one. The scripture talks about this and talks about it a lot. So first of all, God's story always starts with obedience. It's like some of us are waiting for God to move in our lives. We're waiting for him to start a new story. We're waiting for God to start a new chapter. Like how many of us would say like, man, I really need like a new script At the very least, I need for this act to to end. Like, let's get to act two, at least. Like, let's turn the corner. Let's get started on the next chapter. And if God would, like, offer me a completely new role in a completely different script, I would be fine with that. I'd take it right now. Have you ever found yourself at a standstill? At a standstill, maybe in a relationship, in a job, in an area of Ministry or service, in a friendship, financially, at a standstill in your spiritual growth. And you're just standing still, waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to steer you in a new direction. You ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. But we do this. We tend to sit still, to come to a standstill, and we aren't moving at all, and we're just waiting for God to steer us in a new direction. But here's the thing, we're not even moving. But it's when we start to step out in obedience, and you start doing the things that you know to do, and you start walking with God, and the moment you put yourself in motion is the moment that God says, okay, now I've got you. Like, now I see your trust. Now I see your obedience. Now I see that you're committed to this thing. I'm going to work in you. I'm going to work through you. Let's take a turn here. Let's get this thing on a new course. Let's go. But we tend to sit at the standstill and wonder why God isn't doing anything. So we find Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 6. Both of them, it says, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And God says, that's where I start. And we're like, whoa, 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 these people are like very old. They're at the end of their story. And God's like, well, okay then, that's where I start. But these people don't have much to offer. And I think God's like, well, this is where I start then. I'm finding two people who are simply walking in obedience. Secondly, obedience is doing what is right in God's eyes, not ours. Obedience is doing what is right in God's eyes, not ours. We tend to have a weak, watered-down Western view of Christianity, where we give a nod to God. We know God's there, but in reality, we live our lives according to what kind of what we think is good, according to what we think morality is, according to what we think goodness is, according to what we think maybe Jesus would do. Uh, but let me just challenge you: It's not up to us to decide what obedience is. It says both of them were righteous in the sight of God. That is living right in the sight of God, not in their own eyes. In the eyes of God. You're like, what's the difference? Like, what's the big deal? Let me tell you what the difference is. Do you know what Zechariah should have done in his situation? And I'm not saying the Bible says he should have done this. I'm not saying, you know, God would have approved of it. But do you know what would have been socially acceptable for Zechariah to do? He should have divorced Elizabeth a long time ago. The Bible says in Luke 1 that the problem wasn't with Zechariah. The problem was with Elizabeth. It says she was not able to conceive. And in this first century culture and according to their customs, Zechariah had every right to divorce Elizabeth. And in a sense, it seemed like the responsible thing to do because it was your children, more specifically, it was your sons who would care for you in your old age. And according to what was acceptable socially, if she can't give you a son, you should divorce her. Or, or they had a nice alternative. If she can't bear you a son and you want to keep her around because you like her company, you, he would have been allowed to take another much younger wife. So I guarantee you that he and his friends have had this conversation a thousand times. I guarantee you some of his friends have said, Zechariah, look, like I know we've brought this up before but like a hundred times over the last 20 years, but you really need to think about having kids. And I guarantee you even his Jewish God-fearing friends had said, come on, you, like have, you have every right. People, no one's going to think anything of it. You deserve to be happy. I love it when uh, people talk with me, and they're like, well, I've been talking with my Christian friends, and even they think, like even my Christian friends, or even my Christian parents think, wait, our Christian friends are not the word of God. They may want you to be happy. Maybe they want you to be happy so much that they won't speak truth to you. They may want your happiness so much that they'll let go and look the other way when it comes to obedience and holiness. And we spend a lot of time and money and energy pursuing happiness, far more than we pursue holiness. In Luke 1, God says to the writers, I want you to write this down, that they were doing what's right in my sight. So let me just say this, when it comes to obedience, God's word is black and white. There's no need to hope you're being obedient. Obedience is spelled out in God's Word. It isn't like some mystical, mysterious thing that's hidden from us. And listen, if it isn't spelled out in Scripture, then it isn't an obedience issue. It's it's a wisdom issue. And that's another sermon for another day. But obedience is where God starts the story before the story of Christmas. Some of you are hoping for a new story. Some of you are hoping for a new script, a new chapter. For the curtain to come down on this act, and maybe around Christmas season, maybe this will be the time for the curtain to rise on a brand new act. I'm telling you, God is waiting for players in the script. And he's looking for people who will step out in obedience and start moving and just do what is right in his eyes. When you act in obedience, I promise you, you will find yourself playing a part in God's story. And I'm convinced the main reason that many of us don't hear from God like that, and the main reason so many of us don't see God like show up in our situation, and the main reason that so many of us don't find ourselves playing a role in God's story is because we say we love God, and we come to church and we sing the songs, but we're doing what is right in our own eyes. Oh, by the way, back to the story. God's about to pick another couple. Another couple who's never had children, They don't have a sexual relationship, and her name is Mary, right? And so much has been said about why God picks Mary. And I think one of the main reasons he picks this couple is because he knew Joseph was the kind of man who wasn't going to do what was socially acceptable. He wasn't going to cave into family pressures. I mean, you think Zechariah had a get-out-of-jail card, you know, in that culture, uh, you know, when Elizabeth uh, couldn't give him kids? Like, like how, how about Joseph, right? Because you're, you're engaged, and your teenage fiance shows up pregnant. Like, like, no one bats an eye if you call off the wedding and walk away from that one. But he chooses to stay with her and to go through with the wedding, and all he, ha- all he has to go by is an angel speaking to you in a dream, right? And you're telling people, it's from God. There was so much made of Mary, like being a saint. And I get all that, right? I get it. But Joseph, like I think God realized that this is the kind of man who would obey him, who would stay with God's call on his life. He would stand by Mary. He wouldn't give in to societal and family pressures. And he knew that Joseph would pursue holiness over his own happiness. All right, we're still in Luke 1, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So devout Jewish people, they, knew, they, like, they know where we are in the story. right? The rest of us are like, I'm not quite sure what just happened in this story. So here's what's going on. At this time in this Jewish culture, there were, were 20,000 priests. Every male descendant of Aaron is considered a priest. And it's been 1,400 years since they moved into the promised land. So there are 20,000 priests and one temple. So it's tough to get an opportunity to serve in the temple. So what they did is they divided into divisions. And a division could be 700 to about 1,200 priests. And so twice a year for a week, your division got to come to Jerusalem and work in the temple. And you had to share all the duties with 700 to 1,200 other guys. And it's kind of like, yeah, the temple's a big structure and all that, but what what could that many people even do? Like, that's a lot of cleaning they did. But it came time to burn incense in the holy place, and they picked a name out of a hat. Maybe not a hat, but they picked a name, verse 8. When Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. <clears throat> so he's chosen. And he has to walk through the court of the Gentiles, and he has to walk through the court of women, and he walks through the court of the Jews, and he walks up the stairs into the temple itself, and he'll disappear inside those doors, and he'll go where very few men in history have ever gone, He'll have a gold bowl in his hand. It's filled with coals from the morning sacrifice and he'll have incense with him. And once he disappears from the sight of the people, they're watching him go into the holy place. He'll stand in that little space about 400 square feet next to the altar of incense and he'll remove the ashes from the previous sacrifice and he'll pour the coals onto the altar. He'll pour the incense onto the coals and he'll gently blow on the coals and incense will rise. And that incense is a picture of our prayers rising to God. And in front of Zechariah is a curtain, and it separates him from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant used to be kept. At the time, at the time of Zechariah, the Ark had been missing for about 600 years. History is still not sure. Did the Babylonians take it? Did the priests hide it? But at the time of Zechariah, the Ark is gone, but this little three-foot by two-foot box that represented the presence of God, it's gone. But this is still the holiest place in the practice of Judaism. Now, Zechariah is not a high priest, so he's not going into the Holy of Holies. He's going into the holy place. And this is his big day. So he's going into the holy place to light the altar of incense. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing for a Jewish priest. Like his heart is racing, beads of sweat on his forehead, and he starts to pray. And whatever preparation he'd made for this moment didn't prepare him for what's about to happen. Verse 10. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So, Zechariah finally gets his moment. He's in the holy place. He's lighting the altar of incense. He's offering a prayer on behalf of the nation of Israel. And he senses a presence. And he looks up and there's an angel standing there. And he tells him, your prayers have been answered. Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will have a son and his name will be John. So think about this. <clears throat> I don't think Zechariah went into the holy place to pray for a son. I think they would prayed for years for a son. Like for years, for decades. I also think maybe they moved on, like when they became, went from old to very old. I think they'd given up on that prayer. And Zechariah is a devout and righteous man. I don't think he would use this opportunity, a one in 20,000, right, opportunity, to come into the holy place, light the incense, represent the prayers of a nation, and be so brazen and self-absorbed to pray for a sign. Like when a priest prayed at the altar of incense, When a priest prayed with the nation waiting outside, at the end of the prayer, he would walk back out to the temple and he would shout to the people and they would echo back. And it's the same thing every time. And then they would leave knowing that God has heard the prayers of his people. And in that moment, the priest prays for two things. He prays for the salvation of Israel and he prays for the promised Messiah to come quickly. Zechariah is in there praying for the salvation of Israel and for the Messiah to come quickly And an angel says, your prayer has been answered, Elizabeth will have a son. And what Zechariah didn't know is that this boy would set into motion the answer to both of his prayers. The salvation of Israel has come and the Messiah is on his way. Verse 16, he'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Don't move on too quickly. Because like where else have we heard these words? To turn the hearts of the parents to their children. We've heard this before. If you check this out, you go to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Three books to the left of where we are right now in Luke. Malachi chapter 4 is the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. And basically, the message uh, that the Lord is giving through Malachi is, is, I'm tired of my people being religious. I'm tired of my people living their lives, going through the motions, coming to church, being religious, and then going back to their lives. Like, I hate this kind of religion. Malachi, tell the people, this isn't something where you show up one day a week for a couple of hours. This is your whole life. I'm done with religion. And for 400 years, beginning with Malachi, the people of Israel wouldn't hear the voice of God. For 400 years. For 400 years, the people of God heard nothing from God. No new revelation, no truth through his prophets, nothing. And the very last words given to Israel before these years of silence, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. Then silence for 400 years. And the next time anyone on earth hears from God, it's an old priest in the holy place, in the temple in Jerusalem. And an angel named Gabriel shows up and says, your prayers have been heard. And if you're thinking, wait, Matthew and Mark come before Luke, how can this be the next word from God? Mark doesn't include any of this story. And Matthew picks up with the story of Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus. So chronologically, Luke's story comes first. So the first message we have after 400 years of silence is an angel, a messenger from God saying, Zechariah, your boy will turn the hearts of parents to their children. Maybe as an aside, but I would say in light of this prophecy, I think Christmas has to change who we are at home. Like, I'm not talking about who we are at church. I'm talking about who we are at home. The very first words from God when he starts his work in the New Testament is simply, My heart's desire is simply for fathers to love their children, for mothers to love their children, and for children to love their parents. Because God knows like the power of homes where every member of our families love all the other members of the family. He knows if the homes are strong, the community will be strong. If the homes are strong, the churches will be strong. If the homes are strong, the nation will be strong. And not only does God know that, and not only do we know that, but our enemy knows that. Like the enemy of our souls, Satan knows this is true. It's why families are constantly under attack. It's why marriages are constantly under attack. And it's the last thing God says to his people in the Old Testament. And it's the first thing he says after 400 years of silence. And he chooses to communicate this to Zechariah at the biggest moment, on the biggest day of his long life as a servant of God. The promise of the Messiah has got to change how we do everything about our lives, starting with our marriage. It's got to change how we do our relationships with our kids. It has to change how we do family. This has to impact how we answer the question, like how am I loving the people closest to me? It's got to have impact, not just on Sundays, but in our everyday. Man, we are coming into a season where some of you can't, like, can't wait to have family come visit or to go visit family. And, like, some of you can't wait to say goodbye to the family that's coming to visit, right? You're looking forward to them coming, but honestly, you're looking forward to them leaving more. This is a time of year that we are under kind of family stress and tension like no other time of year. For some of you, it's a time of year where you have to, like, you, you have to spend time with people who have caused you some of the greatest hurt and pain in your life. Listen, you want to put yourself in the Christmas story? You want to get this thing in motion, in obedience? You go make this thing the real deal at home. You want to be close to the heart of God? You engage at home. Satan understands this. He understands where the battle is, but I'm not sure that we always get it. The angel says, Zechariah, your son, he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents back to their kids and the hearts of the kids back to their parents. And Zechariah, It's starting in your house. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He's like trying to be nice. And he's standing in the holy place in the temple with an angel. And he's so caught up in his own situation. He's not not sure that God's going to show up in his life. He's so caught up in what he knows about his life that he can't see how God could possibly write the script to tell a greater story. This is a message to everyone who's sitting here thinking, nice story, good for them, yay. What does that have to do with my life? How is God going to do anything in my life? Like, Todd, you obviously don't understand my situation. Clearly, you don't understand uh, the issues in my relationships. You obviously don't understand the complexities of my marriage and my family and my money and my job and my ex. And you don't understand the hurt that comes with this time of year. You don't understand all the reminders of what could have been. Here's point number three. Faith is trusting God's faithfulness, not our circumstances. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, like, like great story, good for them. You know, that's for the Bible. That's for church people, not me. That's for super Christian people, not me. For people who have it all together. But here's how God works with people. The most unlikely of people, in the most unlikely of situations, that's who he delights in. That's what shows him to be God. Because when God uses awesome people, we tend to think, look at them. They're awesome people. When God uses broken, simple, sinful, obedient, faithful people, we're like, look at that. Isn't God awesome? (laughs) Verse 19, the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. It's good news. Like, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news. At the end of this chapter, (laughs) Gabriel's going to deliver some good news to Mary. And in the next chapter, some other angels are going to come to bring some good news to some shepherds. And a little later, some wise men are going to come to receive some good news. But Zechariah got it first, and the good news starts here in the Christmas story. Verse 26, same chapter, says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. This is the story before the story. There are a couple of responses, I think, to this story. Number one, we have to accept how God sees us beyond how we see ourselves. Because most of us uh, succumb to the lies of the accuser, the enemy of our souls. When he tells us, you're not worth it, you've already blown it. Look what you've done. I mean, look at your life. You're not the kind of person God uses. If people at church ever found out about this, if they ever found out the truth about, you know, and we start listening to the lies of Satan. And yet countless times in the Bible, God uses people who we'd never expect. And if you ever wonder, you read a story or you're like, why do we even have the Old Testament anyway? Like, what's the deal with that? If nothing else, it's a history of God saying, don't believe what Satan says about you. Don't believe what you think about yourself for that matter. I am a God who delights in using the weak and foolish things. This is the Christmas story. Our second response would be to be in God's story, we have to follow his script. You want to be in a story? He's already given us his script. It's called obedience. It's surrender. To understand how God sees you, that regardless of what you've done, where you've come from, that God has adopted you and made you his own. God says, that's how I see you. And when we follow his script and get rid of the stuff that says, well, here's what I think I should do, and here's what makes sense to me, when you get to the place where we ditch that and surrender to the will of God and act on it, God will accomplish his story in you. My challenge to you is this. This Christmas season, let's make it a memorable and meaningful Christmas by being a part of the story that God is telling Jesus invited us to play a part in the kingdom he was introducing, the here but not fully here kingdom of God. He's invited us to live in the broken reality of the kingdom in the here and now. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss the story God is telling. Let's be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, what a story you are writing. The story of redemption, of restoration, of bringing us into relationship with you. Thank you for inviting us into this story. Help us to learn to accept how you see us, not just how we see ourselves, that we have value, that we have great worth, that we're made in your image, that we can bring glory to our creator. And we understand that faith is about trusting in your faithfulness, not in our circumstances. So bring us to the place where we can see our circumstances as they really are and where we consistently see you as you really are. We want to follow the script. Like we want to be a part of the story you're telling. We want to be obedient. We want to live in surrender. We want to live lives characterized by surrender to your Holy Spirit. So help us to remember and help us to understand how you see us, that regardless of what we've done or where we've come from or where we've been, that you've invited us into the story. You've invited us into adoption, into your family to make us your own, and that is what's true of us. Thank you for all of that, for the story of Christmas and for the story before the story. In Jesus' name.